Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik and this is Dispatches. In popular culture, Canada is seen as the nicer version of the US. It's America's harmless northern neighbor. While the US is this aggressive, hyper-capitalist, dog-eat-dog place that's constantly launching expensive wars while Americans are drowning in student and medical debt and die due to lack of access to healthcare and mass shootings, Canada is pleasant. It has free healthcare, schools affordable, and it doesn't appear to be gratuitously bombing several different countries in the global south. But things aren't always what they seem on the surface. Behind that shiny exterior is a European settler colony that has and continues to commit atrocities against the indigenous communities on which it was built. Canada is also home to many far-right exile communities that play a role riling up support for this or that American proxy war, from China to Ukraine. It's viciously anti-Palestinian, and its mining companies make a killing exploiting Latin American and African resources. Canada also plays a crucial supporting role in U.S. aggression abroad, adding a layer of respectability and liberalism as the good cop to the U.S. bad cop and wars and coups from the Middle East to Haiti and Honduras. Here to discuss Canada's role in the U.S.-led imperial order is Justin Potter, a professor at York University in Toronto and author of many books, including Extraordinary Threat, Haiti's New Dictatorship, America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and the DR Congo, and Siege Breakers. He's also host of the Anti-Empire Project podcast. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. And as always, be sure to hit the subscribe button and the bell so you get a notification whenever we post new content. And if you appreciate this show, you can also donate below on YouTube. Justin, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be back. I'm so happy to have you back on. It's always such a fun conversation. And today we have so much to talk about. So much. Uh, so so much. much. So you're actually coming to me from the country, which we're going to be discussing. So you're, you're coming to me on the ground, on the ground from the place that we're <laughs> talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is, of course, Canada. Where in Canada are you? You're like in Toronto? Toronto. Yeah. Toronto. Okay. All right, so you're in the heart. Some might call yeah. it the heart of Canada. I don't financial, the financial capital for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you were mentioning to me, um, and when you and I were like talking about this topic, like you, I love the way you framed it because you're talking about like, because my whole question is like, okay, like I want to talk about Canada in this context of US imperialism, right? Um, Canada's always thought of as this like kind of superior, more polite yeah. country. Even Americans look at it that way. They're like, oh, Canada's yeah. so nice. Um, and we can talk about whether that's true or not. Maybe there are, <laughs> there are in fact, some things about Canada that are much nicer than the U.S. It's, there's no question there. However, it is interesting because Canada is this small country, right? Like you mentioned, it has a population around 39 million, which isn't very much. It's like a little bit more than Venezuela. Yeah, a um, little bit like, less, a little bit less than Afghanistan. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Despite like not having that many people in it, right? Um, it, it's a part of the G7, which you were talking to mm. me about. It's this country that is uh, part of the Five Eyes Alliance, right? This mm -hmm. like anti-China alliance, really, if we want to call it yeah. what it actually is between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, US, and UK. Mm -hmm. um, the intelligence, you know, Sharing. Five Eyes. It's such a creepy name. It's um, so creepy. Like, yeah. could it be any creepier than that? Maybe. Uh, but anyways, like you, there are bigger countries like Afghanistan. There's certainly bigger economies. 
yet Canada sits at the sort of top of the of the yeah. hierarchy when it comes to the global order. Uh, and on top of that, you know, there's so many other interesting aspects of Canada, like the fact that it's like fanatically pro-Israel mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. the point where like politicians across the country are kind of always like fighting each other to prove how much they love Israel and hate Palestine and BDS. Yeah. Um, and then I thought there was like another interesting thing about Canada, because, OK, also in the US, we don't learn Canadian history. We just learn US history. If you could even call it that. We learn a version of U.S. history. Whatever you're allowed to learn in certain states, I guess you're not even allowed to learn. I mean, the, what is the, yeah, you're not really allowed to learn like what the Civil War was about. But well, that's a, that's a show for another day. Um, but Canada, I mean, you were you also had mentioned to me how Canada until 1947 had no actual Canadian citizenship, which sounds so crazy. Yeah. So Canada was considered British North America. Yeah, um, the history. Yeah, that's which is so wild. So there's a lot to talk about here. We're obviously we're not we're going to talk about Canada domestically. We're going to branch out to Canada internationally on the global stage and stuff like that. But I think a good place to start is what everybody here is wondering, which is why is there British royalty on your money? Oh, it's yeah. strange and slightly embarrassing. Yeah, let's, so, start, let's start there. Let's start there. <laughs> so British royalty, we have the Queen on our money. Mm -hmm. And soon we're going to have King Charles on the money. So they're going to spend, yeah, so yeah. they're going to spend a lot of money on making new bills and coins that have this Charles, King Charles on the money because, uh, because Canada is, um, historically and I suppose currently, uh, by its constitution, uh, the, the head of state is, um, the monarch in britain so, so weird. <laughs> it's not a republic right the u.s is a republic canada is not a republic it's considered a constitutional monarchy although it, there are debates about whether we have a constitution we don't have a constitution like you have a constitution in the u.s we have a a charter of rights and anyway <laughs> that, that history is also pretty strange but we probably it's not that exciting um to get into uh but the point is yeah the 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 person who owns Canada is at the moment King Charles. So there, there's we have huge amounts of land that are called crown land. That crown is the crown of the King of England. So the, the treaties with indigenous nations uh, that basically give Canada access to the land, um, those are with the crown. And that's the crown of the King of England. So the King of <laughs> England right now wow. is the person who, you know, who really actually, and I, I don't know, I, I don't think he's ever exercised this in a long time, but I, I, I do sometimes wonder what would happen if he decided to assert his, <laughs> his ownership over this country. I mean, um, uh, uh, well, that's a, we, we, I'm so sorry that you have to have money with that man's face on it. Um, but I guess, I guess this speaks to the larger point. I mean, all jokes aside, like yeah. the fact that Canada is in fact a settler colony, um, yeah. which it's not typically like thought of that way. Um, for, I don't really know what reason, but <laughs> let walk us through that. Cause it's quite interesting. Cause Canada, uh, wasn't just a settler project of the British. It was also a settler project of the French. And there's like mm -hmm. ongoing disputes that are quite confusing around yeah. Quebec because of that. But yeah, walk us through like this, you know, we can say Canada might have nice aspects to it today, but the kinds of sort of settler col colonization that we saw in America that we know to be the case for the, yeah. what's today the U S was similar in Canada. And then also had some interesting mm -hmm. distinctions that, 
you know, the country continues to apologize for sort of. Yeah, exactly. So this is I, I'll take you through a little bit of what I would consider mainstream Canadian history. So you we do learn this, not exactly all of these details, but for the most part, we do learn this in school, in high school. So you were saying Americans learn American history. Everybody learns American history, <laughs> but in Canada, people also learn, you know, Canadian history. So, so Canada was a French colony first. Mm -hmm. um, and that we are all taught this myth that French colonialism was a little bit more benevolent, that there was this, uh, you know, friendly relationship between the French and the um, indigenous people, which is not the case. Uh, the French were known to be bringers of tremendous disease. Uh, they stole, you know, they kidnapped people. They, you know, they forced uh, women to marry them. There was uh, high mortality rates from smallpox. And uh, yeah, so... There's this fur trade. So there's a lot Canadians learn about the fur trade. Um, mm -hmm. And again, this is like this fun thing where these courier de bois rode their canoes and they got furs. And there's this whole uh, economic system that we learn about. But again, the fur trade led fairly, um, you know, fairly systematically to the extinction of the beaver. The beaver was the animal that whose fur was being traded. Um, and then as Canada pushed west... Uh, into Western, what's Western, or the prairies now, uh, that we then followed that with the extinction of the buffalo. Mm. Uh, there's also <laughs> there's also a history of forcing liquor, forcing alcohol on Indigenous nations. Uh, some of them tried to resist. They saw the damage that alcohol was doing and they were basically forced, it was forced on them at gunpoint. So there's um, just, you know, this was all during the benign <laughs> period of uh, colonization, right? And then, benign. <laughs> and then things get bad in the 19th century by comparison. So uh, 1857, uh, Canada passes a law called the Gradual Civilization Act. So if you're an indigenous uh, nation or a first nation and people start talking about gradual civilization, you know something horrible is coming. Um, and then in 1856, there's the Indian Act. And the Indian Act, um, one commentator on the Indian Act, I guess it was a politician that was involved in passing it, he says, our Indi Indian legislation generally rests on the principle that the Aborigines are to be kept in a condition of tutelage and treated as wards or children of the state. The true interests of the Aborigines and of the state alike require that every effort should be made to aid the red man in lifting himself out of his condition of tutelage and dependence. And that is clearly our wisdom and our duty through education and every other means to prepare him for a higher civilization by encouraging him to assume the privileges and responsibilities of full citizenship. So that's, you know, that's very typical, like white man's burden. It's around the same time, you know, mm -hmm. civilizing mission talk. But it, but like, uh, again, I don't know whether people know that Canada was the was a very eager participant in this. Um, okay. So. The, I don't, the other thing that people, that Canadians and uh, First Nations uh, in Canada like to remind people of is the, the past system. So when 
after the Indian Act, uh, the goal of Canada was to force all the First Nations onto small reserves. And this was relatively difficult to do because uh, Indian uh, Indigenous people didn't want to go. But then there was a famine, a series of famines in the 1880s, and it was the famines that were used to force them onto reserves. They said, basically, you go on the reserve and we'll provide you with emergency famine relief. If you don't go on the reserve, we won't. You can starve and die. And in some cases, they starved them anyway. In other cases, they gave them actual poisoned food, poisoned pork. There was a case where many Native people died from eating poisoned pork. They were forced to eat. They knew it was poisoned, but, uh, you know, one of the officials said they will eat the bacon or die. Uh, they did eat it and they died anyway. So, and and like at that time, the conservative prime minister, John A. Macdonald, was in parliament and he had to answer questions from the Canadian Liberal Party who were saying, you're spending too much money on feeding Native people. And he said, don't worry, we're actually saving as much money as possible by keeping them on the edge of starvation. So that's wow. like, yeah, that's like the conservatives answering the liberals saying the liberals were saying we were spending too much money. Um, so after they're all confined on reserves by the uh, end of the 19th or the beginning of the 20th century, that's when Canada starts stealing their children and taking them to residential schools where there are schools where there are death rates of 40 to 50 percent in some cases. And there's a whistleblower, um, a doctor who inspects these residential schools. And he says he finds basically that it's deliberate. He's like, there's no way that we can create these conditions and not um, be creating these conditions that are uh, designed to kill children. And he makes a report to the health commissioner and he's immediately fired, basically. So he's um, Dr. Peter Bryce. He He's, you know, the book, you can go on archive.org and you can read his report. Mm -hmm. But he got pushed out for... for so it was like whistleblower, it. basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, okay. Um, so and then like here's another here <laughs> here's another quote for you from uh duncan campbell scott who was uh i think he was the health minister at one point i think he was the minister of indian affairs 1910 he says um you know basically even though the ch ch indigenous children are dying at a much higher rate in the schools than in their villages this alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department which is geared towards the final solution of our Indian problem. So you've heard that language. Wow, where's that? That, that sounds so familiar, and Justin. That language, final remember, solution. Remember I that that language like comes heard that after, somewhere. right? So Hitler is talking yeah. about that 30 years after. Canada gets there long before, right? And this is what people, you know, um, people think of like Hitler and the Nazis, but Hitler and the Nazis were following what the British were doing in North America and they were following yeah. what the US was doing in, in the US. And and the thing about the, the, this is all happening in parallel to the exact same things happening in the US to, to indigenous nations in the US. Um, and whenever Canada, Canada is very clever about forcing in, indigenous people onto reservations in the sense that when it's not starvation, they're basically like, look, look what's happening in the U.S. Look at these Indian wars. Look at the massacres that are happening there. You don't want that to happen. Why don't you just go on the reserve? So it's not like the, the like uh, there's always this 
there's always this policy that Canada has of being a little bit better than the U.S. that totally depends on everything going on the in the U.S. So it's always like a good cop, bad cop kind of situation. Canada can't do what it does or get away with what it get, gets away with unless the U.S. is there doing the bad cop work. So you have to understand it as part of a system. It's the same with, you know, like analogous to the Republicans and Democrats in the U.S., right? It's like Canada and the U.S. It's like the Democrats love that the Republicans are so right wing so that they can say, well, at least we're not them. And Canada yeah. has that with the U.S., you know, yeah. at least we're not. However bad it is, whatever they're doing in Canada, they can always say, you know. So in Alberta, for example, has a ster sexual sterilization act. It's law, 1928 to 1972, under which they sterilized uh, 2,800 Indigenous women. And this whole this whole system, there's a there's a book. There's some good uh, kind of anti-colonial literature from the 1970s in Canada. There's a book called The Genocide Machine in Canada. And what they talk about specifically is like Canada is basically this mining project. It's a colonial, it's a colonization project. So we have the fur trade, we have the buffalo, we have all of these things. But then ultimately today, the, the project is mining. And mm -hmm. Canada is, there's all these mines in Canada for all kinds of minerals and oil. The dirtiest, some of the dirtiest oil in the world comes from Alberta, right? The oil sands. Um, and there's mining, this mining project is basically like you go to indigenous land, you deprive people of their livelihoods because they depend on water and fishing and hunting and all of these things that depend on an intact ecosystem. You destroy all of that. And then you put them on welfare, basically. You say, okay, well, we'll keep you alive through emergency relief, welfare. And then right. you kind of then you kind of complain, like, why do we have to put these people up? Why do we have to, you know, it, it becomes this resentment. Like, they have special treatment. They have special rights because, but it's like you just deprive them of their livelihoods, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. this is the model of mining that Canada then exports to the world. So Canada is the world's mining superpower. Almost half of the world's publicly listed mining and mineral exploration companies are uh, from Canada. Uh, and this is actually the role that they play on the G7 is that they're the mining company to the, the mining project to the world. So this um, is why Canada like actually like its economy matters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and freedom in Canada is understood as free access to mining. And there's like a forest, uh, forest defenders NGO uh, that's basically made a map. This is some time ago, too. This is years ago where they kind of mapped out all of the territory that's been kind of staked and claimed by mining companies. And that's in red. So if you look at this map that you're showing here, the a, a really huge chunk of Canadian land, most, you know, I don't know if it's majority, but it's easily 20 or more percent of the entire immense national territory is actually planned. Some mining company plans to have a mine there. Um, oh. And obviously, if this happens, right, this is a map for basically, you know, like 
ecological destruction Jeez. of uh, unbelievable scale. So yeah, for those who are listening, it's like basically like we're showing a map of Canada and like all the red <laughs> is the various like uh, mines. Are these like the various? No, they're mines? not the mines. They're the they're the stake. Like the mining mine, Some mining company has said we want to mine here one day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they've like decided this area belongs to us that we can yeah. go mine it when we want. Yeah, and it's like it's like split up by. There's a lot of its mineral claims. Like the, the red part yeah. is all the mineral claims. But yeah. yeah, it's a lot of Canada, basically. Like for those and, who can't see it, it's like they've and, like claimed all the territory to mine. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because the, the, when you think of the legal basis for Canada or the basis um, for Canada, because this map also contains like indigenous uh, treaties. So Canada is, you know, the land uh, uh, on which Canada exists is all indigenous land, right? And there's a, there's been a treaty process which involved a fair amount of deception and swindling and Canada not fulfilling its obligations under the treaties to get this land from indigenous people. Um, but for the most part, the the Canada's claim to this land is pretty shaky. And Canada is supposed to get consent for, from Indigenous nations before they can do any of these projects. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's part of why this map is so interesting is because you, on the one hand, Canada says, well, we're free to mine everywhere. And on the other hand, Canada is in this kind of shaky legal situation where all the land in Canada is actually Indigenous land. And it's there's no real... There's no solid legal basis other than the treaties for Canada to even have access to this land in the first place. And the I treaties, see. of course, Canada is not fulfilling. So maybe they have to give it all back. So it's just this, it, it's it's the way that Canada exists as this um, mining project mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and doesn't have a solid claim to the territory on which it, it exists. And that's, it's just a very interesting legal situation. And then, so if the whole point of colonization is of and settler colonialism in the first place is to get rid of the native population, then there's the part of filling the land up with the uh, non-native population, with, with the settler population. And the various patterns of immigration to Canada are designed to serve the needs of the British Empire and ultimately to kind of win the demographic war with First Nations. So again, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, um, the Canadian government created this uh, open door immigration for white people, basically for white people. And Clifford Sifton, who was the Minister of the Interior from 1896 to 1905, he said basically, you know, we're looking for a quality immigrant um, that's uh, something quite different from what the average person has in mind. He says, I think a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat born on the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for 10 generations with a stout wife and a half dozen children is good quality. A trades union artisan who will not work more than eight hours a day and will not work that long if he can help it, will not work on a farm at all. It has to be fed by the public when his work is slack is in my judgment quantity and very bad. Uh, quality. I am indifferent as to whether he's British born. Um, so that's when they start opening up to Irish, you know, Irish, Scottish. There's a there's a whole Irish thing that happens after the famine in mm -hmm. 18, uh, 1840s. So a lot of Irish come then. But then there's um, 
there's a thing that happens with Chinese immigrants where uh, Chinese come starting in the 1850s and even earlier to Western Canada, BC, and then Canada imposes various head taxes and bans, but they also want to you know, take advantage of colonizing China along with the British. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the the Chinese consul uh, to Canada says, you know, Europeans insist on the right of unrestricted commercial relations with China, but enforce unjust and equal restrictions on Chinese merchants and laborers. So that was, you know, about 100 plus years ago. When, and there were a- outright anti-Asian riots in Vancouver, in 1907, where they destroy people's shops and smash all their windows and all that stuff. So Canada has a long history of anti-Chinese discrimination in particular, which is not um, absent from the current political uh, discourse in Canada. Right. Uh, And, you know, that, that leads us to a whole other discussion of the way that Canada recruits immigrants with particular, um, I guess, political positions uh, in uh, fr- from different parts of the world. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a nice like uh, overview <laughs> yeah. of uh, the sort of like Canadian, uh, I guess, the Canadian like uh, settler colonial history. And then that kind of feeds into what you're talking about with the different kinds of immigrants. I mean, one thing that Canada also has is these kinds of like right-wing diasporas. Um, And there's a few examples of this that I know that you want to touch on. So I'll just hand it over to you there. Can you walk us through like who some of those diasporas are and the role they end up playing and sort of like riling up support for this or that? Yeah. A few stories, right? So of course, um, because Hong Kong was an outright British colony until very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was 1989 or something. It was like a hundred year uh, lease that, you know, the British, when they took Hong Kong, were thinking was never going <laughs> to, you know, never going to expire. And then China had the revolution in 1949. And then they just waited until it expired. And then they were like, well, it's expired. We won't be giving you another lease <laughs> for Hong Kong, right? So, but like when that happened, a lot of uh, Chinese people from Hong Kong who were anti-Chinese Chinese revolution uh, came t- to Canada because, of course, it's a it's a British colony. It's the same system as Can- as Hong Kong was, right? So that's that's one, and you know, that's a that's. So the Chinese, a lot of the Chinese community in Canada from that time and since is, uh, you know, against the Chinese government, uh, which is great because Canada then can say like, look, you know, we have Chinese people and they hate the Chinese government, which is Canada's, which happens to be Canada's official position as well. Right. Um, in 2002, uh, I believe, no, 2003, I think, um, there was a huge, um, like, the, in Venezuela, they attempted to overthrow the government in a coup uh, in 2002. Chavez, Hugo Chavez was kidnapped for two days, uh, and uh, and then he they were, they were forced to free him and let him out, and he resumed his presidency. But they, they tried to create, like, a, a national strike. So the oil company executives and managers went on strike in 2003. And they... Um, they 
tried to bring the oil industry, which is Venezuela's key strategic industry, uh, to its knees and force a regime change that way. And when Chavez responded by basically firing all the managers and engineers and keeping the industry going that way, well, a lot of those uh, diehard anti-Chavez people with those skills to work in petroleum mining came to Canada and they went oh, to work. Oh, look at that. <laughs> they went to work in yeah. Alberta. Um, so then again, you have, you know, a group of Venezuelans who are Venezuelan. They're as Venezuelan as anybody, just like the people from Hong Kong or as Chinese as anybody. And they happen to hate the government that's in power. So it's this beautiful, from Canada's perspective, it's like you have this great identity. You can be very, um, you can be very positive towards people with that identity because they're taking that political position that is also coincides with what the U.S. and, and the Canadian state uh, wants to hear. Mm -hmm. um, you have, of course, the Jewish community in Canada. And the Jewish community in Canada, it's amazing because the organized, the Jewish community organizations are all pro-Israel. And so the official Jewish community, of course, is pro-Israel. And then any Jewish person, of which there are many, who are not pro-Israel is sort of like, well, you're not really part of the community then, right? <laughs> like it's it's kind it's this uh, it's like to be part of the community, to be a Jewish Canadian or a Venezuelan Canadian or a Chinese Canadian is also to be um, part to be uh, to identify with the politics of the country in a way that Canada also. Um, does <laughs> does yeah does that's the word <laughs> so um those are all examples and then like and then there are there are some diasporas in canada that are just like invisible so there's you, you there's a big palestinian community actually in the in the city where i grew up which is like a suburb of of toronto called mississauga and there's many Palestinians there, but like, and there's even a thing called Palestine House there, which is almost like an unofficial consulate, right? And uh, the Palestinian Canadian community is not even, you don't even really hear that phrase. That's not yeah. a phrase. You might yeah. hear about an Arab Canadian community. You might hear about a Muslim Canadian community, but you won't hear the Palestinian Canadian community. There are people who try to put that out there, but you essentially won't hear it. There's even, um, we even have a, a minister in, in the cabinet who's Palestinian Canadian, but he never, he never talks about himself that way. Um, <laughs> interesting character, but I won't, I won't. <laughs> Uh, I'll leave it at that. People, Canadians well, will know. <laughs> Canadians, Canadians will know. Will know. This is like two inter-Canadian baseball here. Um. Uh, the, you, then there's Ukraine. And Ukraine is pretty special um, mm -hmm. because our deputy prime minister is Christia Freeland, whose, whose grandfather ran like That's a Nazi newspaper. Mm -hmm. And th this is like, there's an interview from before when Christia Freeland was an academic where um, Michael Ignatieff, who's also a Canadian uh, po politician and writer, he's a pro-empire. He wrote a book. He writes books about like why the empire is a good thing, why the U.S. empire is a good thing. Um, he was at Harvard for a while and he ran for prime minister. He didn't do very well. <laughs> he didn't electorally. He didn't succeed. But there's an interview. He does an interview with Christia Freeland where he says it is common. He's quoting Christia. He says, uh, it is common, Christia Freeland says, for Canadian Ukrainians to think of themselves as the true Ukrainians, the ones who kept the faith 
while among the actual Ukrainians, the compulsion and fatalism of the communist system was working its way into their bones. The oh. Ukrainian Canadians return home expecting a fervently nationalist and religious people and find instead phlegmatic, ironic, sober, and fatalistic Soviet souls. Independence requires a new human type, but, she says, with an equal measure of affection and irritation, it will be a long time coming. So that's like, I mean, that's the whole story of of the way they get immigrants uh, from different countries, right? It's like, I mean, we should also, we can't, we can't real quick, we can't mention Christia Freeland without mentioning her father was literally like a Nazi, or grandfather, I'm sorry, was literally like a Nazi propagandist. Like a leader, like he he wasn't like, yeah, he wasn't like a small fish. He was a big fish. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the Canadian prime, and that's like, you know, the Canadian prime minister at the time, uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, he was an admirer of Hitler. So like the Hitler thing, the, the, in fact, there, there's a story, you know, before speaking of the, the Canadian uh, pro-Israel uh, lobby, um, a lot of them before this current cycle of Ukraine-Russia conflict, which I would say is like 2014 on, right? Um, a lot of them were very upset about the Ukrainian Nazi uh, immigrants. So there were like 2000 Ukrainian Nazis who came right after World War II to Canada. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that, uh, one of the pro-Israel kind of people in Canada, Irving Abella, he was, I guess he was involved in tracking them. And he said, one way of getting into post-war Canada was by showing your SS tattoo, your Nazi tattoo, Mm -hmm to prove you're an anti-communist. So like anti-communism is a criteria for getting into Canada, whether you're a Nazi or not is, you know, pretty irrelevant. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so basically there's like, uh, you know, the settler colonialism of getting all the white people. Uh, but now there's also like an ingathering of every right wing diaspora in the world. Um, and, and they can come to Canada and they can be the representatives of their countries in Canada. So the kind of hyphenated Canadian uh, is like also takes a political stand uh, as well. So. Oh, well, I, that's, I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, Canada is just like teeming with the worst kinds of a, <laughs> of a diaspora, but yeah, but those are the immigrants they want, obviously, uh, yeah. because it helps like, it helps like bring support for their policies, but it also kind of segues into the next topic we were going to talk about, which is Canada's, I think very central role in this new cold war era that we're in mm-hmm. uh, against Russia and China. I mean, against Russia, you do have this like, yeah. you know, Christia Friedland like yeah. type, like yeah. right wing Ukrainian population to help encourage or lobby for at least like Canada's participation in this war on Russia. And then of course there's a situation with China, which I think is uh, mm-hmm. important to talk about as well. Um, so I'll yeah give it to you from there is what's China's role in this Cold War? Yeah, so Canada has it, it's it's it, it's a good time for us to do this show in the sense that the past couple of months in Canada has been really uh, there's been a real push in the Canadian media to create a, a China panic, and the idea is there are, at the moment I saw a headline that there are 100 investigations about foreign interference into Canada's politics and foreign interference means Chinese interference. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.